right, uh, we ready to go, Aaron? Yeah, I'm good to go. We're just waiting on Damien. Oh, there oh, he is. Wait, yeah, here he is. Oh, wait, the why the hell? fuck is he just ahead in a pool of blood? It's filled, you bastard. Who's gonna believe a talking head? Get a job in a podcast. <laughs> hell yeah. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. This week, we are going to be tackling the 1985 splatter classic Reanimator, directed by Stuart Gordon, and we have back our special guest, Damien Potesta. Welcome back, sir. The Freddy superfan himself, and I'm sure you've only heard this joke mm, about a million times during your life. The son of Satan from Omen himself, Damien. That's right, that's me. Born in June as well. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me back. Excited to be here. Yes, we are very excited to discuss this movie with you. This is your first one back since we did the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it's been like literally a year. I think we recorded February 21st based on my notes here. Yeah, Derek has had a whole child since then. Uh, and cancer. Yeah, so. <laughs> and cancer. And cancer. God, that's wow. Yeah. You doing okay? Yeah, they just cut it out of me. So, <laughs> like, oh shit, good. I mean, yeah. that's that's good. And move to the tropics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Island life now. Island dad life. That's cool. Oh yeah. So yeah, we are going to be discussing Reanimator in just a few minutes. But first, guys, let's go ahead and talk about some recommendations we have for our listeners of other horror-related things that we have been consuming lately whether it's books comics other movies music etc so damien being that you are our guest what have you been getting into lately i just watch uh as much horror as i can when i can my wife hates horror movies so <laughs> i feel you there man yeah yeah so when i can't sleep and i get up at 3 a.m i throw something on i've watched recently psycho gorman yes so good which is fucking batshit crazy i fucking love that movie. i love that movie it's so good it is so stupid man but god it was such a great movie i watched the entire crystal lake memories on shutter to get the whole backstory of friday the 13th movies and that was that was really interesting i'm assuming you've watched the nightmare on elm street one right oh god yeah yeah never sleep again it's yeah. the same yeah, exact guys so derek the crystal lake one is like four hours it is yeah it's literally a massive documentary about the making behind the scenes it's of of every higher Friday the 13th series oh. and they've got the directors writers stars just anybody that was involved with them as many people as possible back on to kind of talk through each movie one by one yeah you want to know something wild while we're on that topic and this kind of goes hand in hand with a running theme on our podcast I have not actually start to finish including the original have seen a Friday the 13th Jason X and Freddy vs. Jason I think are the only two Jason movies <laughs> I've seen start to finish so you saw the ones that were out when we were in like middle school and high school. Yes, but I watched a lot of parts because they used to have like marathons on sci-fi when sci-fi was sure, a yeah, horror movie channel in the 90s and early yeah. 2000s. So I caught a bunch of scenes from a bunch of random Friday the 13th, but I've never actually seen one start to finish. And part of the reason why is I'm kind of waiting for us to, we're going to probably start with the original, but like I kind of want to use our podcast now as an excuse to get first viewing of those movies in so I can have really 
fresh thoughts. I'll be real. This is obviously thought process that I've rolled around in my head. And, you know, this is maybe like behind the scenes for like listeners. But that's a series that I don't know that I want to do just the first movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Uh it's easier when you do Nightmare on Elm Street, for instance, because the first movie can completely stand alone. Yes. And then I think what we're going to do is we're going to go back and talk about the sequels in chunks like we'll maybe do an arc where we'll get Damien back on and let's cover like three four five because that is a complete story arc and then we will do two six and seven and those are kind of the like ones that stand alone right so we'll do like two different episodes for those chunks but for something like Friday the 13th if I'm being honest the first movie's kind of dull it really is and It doesn't have any of the obvious stuff that you think of. Like, I'm not going to go into details. If you know, you know, right? Oh, no, no. I mean, I know the big thing of the first one. But I think it would be more interesting for that to just cover one through four, which is a definite story arc, and then cover five, six, seven, eight from there, and then do just the New Line movies. You know, like, that makes sense. And that one's at least easy, because you could do them, like, in a row, but just break it up into three parts, you know? It's not as jump around as Nightmare on Elm Street would be. But I think that's one that it would make more sense to cover them that way and just do the whole thing versus covering each one individually because again like what do you start with do you start with just the first movie do you start with the second movie do you do just the fan favorites which are like three four six obviously five is a weird disconnected one that's separate from everything yeah how do you do that series i mean i I always thought in my head we would do like one and two together because that kind of sets the stage because like you do have to go into a lot of detail of how the first one really was a smash hit out of nowhere like you said you could do one two and then do three four and then first story reasons you need to include too yeah if anybody's interested i mean that crystal lake memories documentary is exhaustive but it's really good it is really it's the kind of thing i find myself quite often just putting that and never sleep again just on in the background because they're like on shutter and just have it running and just have something to kind of listen to like while you're cooking or folding clothes or whatever you know (laughs) so yeah those are both really really enjoyable if you're into behind the scenes stuff for sure yeah some of the other stuff i've been getting into some YouTube videos about the Unit 731 Japanese documentaries. Yeah. Ooh, rough. That is <laughs> yeah. Some creepy shit. Yep. Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Men Behind the Sun is a pretty rough documentary yep. for sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I got that off of my boss, uh, actually turned me on to this YouTube channel, Mr. Ballin. He's just a guy. He was, he was in the military. He's a Navy SEAL and he just tells stories. He talks about true crime and paranormal. Huh. He's a good storyteller. And he's got an incredible number of videos. And one of them he did, he mentioned the Unit 731. I highly recommend his YouTube channel. It's really good. It's just really fascinating stories that he talks about. So I watch, I mean, the guy dumps about three stories a week. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So his stuff's really good. So for those of you who are audience who may not know what Unit 731 is, which you bringing that up makes me feel better about at least one of my recommendations that's coming. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Unit 731. Imagine like the worst experimentation that took place in Nazi concentration camps, but this is the Japanese doing it. And it was like a whole Imperial Japanese army unit that was just focusing on lethal human experimentation with biological and chemical weapons. It happened during what it was a Japanese war prior to World War II, but then I think it went through World War II as well. It did. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's yeah. like some of the worst war crime atrocities in the history of ever, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the doctors that conducted the experiments, none of them faced any sort of charges. They went on to have just normal careers in the medical industry. Yep. It's, it's freaking crazy. Yeah. It, it's kind of wild because we also have learned. I mean, I don't know how obvious it has been, but it feels like in more recent history, we found that a lot of America and these other like world powers post World War II were actually like getting the scientists and the medical experts that or I say experts quote unquote at least from the Nazis from like the concentration camps and hiring them on to do work for the government you know because they have all this quote unquote knowledge but yeah it's all kind of fucked up and like dark history that people don't necessarily always know about yeah yeah and then uh, there's a YouTube channel of all horror shorts that I've been watching some movies on. Short movies that people make themselves, and they're pretty good. Not Nothing's been really too chilling. There's actually been one about Unit 731 that had a couple of uh, familiar faces in it. Those were pretty good. Other than that, that's been really about it. You know, just watching a lot of movies on Shutter and YouTube videos. You told me you slogged through the entire Scream series to watch the new one. I have not watched the new one yet. I got okay. through one through Five? Four. Four. Yeah, okay. five will be the yeah. new one. So let me ask you this then, because I've always heard that in terms of story and even quality, that the Scream series is probably one of the best slasher series like of all time of just every movie being pretty good and the story being relatively consistent and not retconning a bunch of shit. In your opinion, like, is that how you feel since you've recently watched through at least all the past movies? Yeah, I mean, they're good movies. I don't think there's a particularly really bad one. Because 90s was not really the best for for horror, and Scream 1 made fun of the horror genre, which coincidentally was mostly, you know, started by Wes Craven himself. Not mostly, but, you know, he was part of it. And so he makes a movie that makes fun of the tropes that we all became familiar with. But the thing is, is that as the Scream movies progressed, they all kind of became what Scream 1 made fun of. They all became the similar movie. A good bit, yeah. Yeah, there's also like a weird self-awareness that kind of runs through the entire franchise. Yeah. Yeah, none of them are bad movies, but I didn't really feel that many of the characters really developed very well along the way. Now, I haven't seen the new one, so maybe that changed for the three returning characters, but I, I just personally didn't see a lot of progression in the characters through the first four movies. It is just amazing to me, though, all things aside, that Wes Craven in two different eras of his career created two different horror icons that everyone knows between Ghostface and Freddy Krueger. Like, that's kind of insane, yeah. Yeah. And not just created two horror icons, but realistically, in three different decades, redefined the genre as a whole. I mean, because Last House on the Left came out in the 70s and was a massive shocker. Nobody had really seen anything that transgressive and dark and just rough, right? And I mean, ostensibly, like, it is just a remake of a Bergman movie, right? But at the same time, like... When did the cannibal movies come out? Like, So, Hills Head Eyes was right after that, and that was also, like, kind of a big deal, but the way that he kind of redefined three different decades for the genre and kind of reset all of them with those two movies, Nightmare on Elm Street, and then Scream is kind of ridiculous just to have that much of an impact on the genre as a whole over that long of a period. But yeah, so I also rewatched the Scream 
movies. I rewatched them a few weeks back when I was running like an insane out of nowhere fever. And so I was in bed <laughs> with a hundred and three fever. No, not COVID. I just had a crazy fever and it turned out I had a whole other kind of thing going on, but I had a nuts hundred and three fever and was just wow. up in bed losing my mind <laughs> and and watching those movies on my iPad and the entire time again with just fever brain melding in and out of all four of those movies i had never actually seen four until then and i thought i was kind of losing my mind because four tonally changed a lot and it obviously has the weird false start beginning that is kind of that recursive thing the stab yeah, like doing those fake openings, right? I was yeah. honestly kind of thrown, though, when the actual movie kicked in with the amount of gore that was in 4. Because the first three movies, I mean, there is stabbing and there is some blood and there is people like, you know, blood out of their mouth and stuff like that. But the first three movies are not overtly gory like number 4 where they walk in the bedroom of one of the characters that gets killed and there's literally blood everywhere, guts poured out all over the ground. Like, not nearly that grisly. And I thought for a minute, wait, did I put on the right movie what is this what are these fake movies just losing my mind <laughs> with fever watching <laughs> that but yeah like you i have also not had time to see the new one yet i mean it kind of came and went from theaters in our area pretty quick i guess i'm just gonna have to catch up with it on streaming because i mean it hit right at the height of omicron and heather and i were like not going to massively pack to the theaters because yeah. the theaters around us also dropped all their spacing and they dropped their mask requirements and so it was just loads of people packed in for yeah. the holiday season and for spider-man specifically so yeah by the time scream came out theaters were still packed and we were just like no <laughs> we'll wait a little bit yeah i mean scream one had obviously you know but that scene was cut so short yeah. that you could almost not even you'd have to pause it to really tell the amount of gore that was in that scene yeah but like you said it's pretty freaking amazing that Wes Craven this guy did some pretty amazing stuff through the 70s 80s 90s yeah and into the 2000s yep. you know so yeah I'm very curious we need to watch that last one and we'll chat then and kind of catch up on what we think about it because I've heard it's good I've heard people like it and I liked Ready or Not which was the movie that those directors did previously so I'm open to see it and I mean it was enough of a hit that they have already greenlit number six and it's supposed to start shooting this summer so we'll see Cool, cool. Uh, you got anything else? I've been playing the uh, Inside video game on the Switch. Oh, shit. How do you like that? It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. I mean, it's pretty trippy. I mean, it's a side-scroller. I've been playing side-scrollers since the 80s, obviously. Great atmosphere. I love the graphics. The uh, animation is nice and smooth. It's essentially, you know, just kind of a dark Tomb Raider kind of game. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like a minimalistic sort of... Dark is the best way to describe it. Kind of psychologically yeah. horror video game. Yeah. It's very surreal, too. Yeah, there's no real story to it. I mean, there's nothing that tells you what's going on. You just kind of unpack it as you play it. There's a lot of interpretations to it and theories. Like, there's some ideas that it being psychological, like what's real and what isn't, versus him actually being in this 1984-esque type of scenario. But yeah, it's minimalistic and darkly surreal, but it is absolutely a horror game. Yeah, and it's worth the 20 bucks, you know, that you pay for. I think it was 20 bucks or 15 on the Switch. Yeah, it's made by the same people who did Limbo, which Limbo is another one of these type of uh, games. okay, yeah. okay. I know Limbo. Yeah. yeah, their whole aesthetic is very, like, dark surrealist and a lot of death in it <laughs> yeah 
It's a good game. I really enjoy it. Awesome. Derek, what about you? What you got? I have still been on my kick of just watching some random, maybe a little bit under the radar, underappreciated 80s horror and schlock. I decided to watch the original Slumber Party Massacre from 1982. Okay. You told me a while back I'll watch something. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Yeah, this is it. So before like we kind of open the floor to discussing this film, here's my thought. I watched it and it felt like a movie that got meddled with by producers and that's exactly what happened when i looked it up yep (laughs) the stuff that works really fucking well in this movie is when this movie is self-aware and borderline satirical and the ending of the movie actually is pretty great the last third of the movie is all kind of pretty great when it felt like sort of a different kind of movie than like the rest of the movie had been turns out when i looked this up and i'm pretty sure we'll eventually cover this movie on our podcast for an episode yes because i think there's a lot of stuff to talk about it but kind of briefly it was directed by woman the original script was written by a feminist the original script was supposed to be speaking a scream like you brought up earlier damien it was supposed to be like a parody of the slasher genre especially of the slasher's genre's treatment towards women that's really early on to do a parody already yeah, yeah. and <laughs> they got fucked with by a ton of producers the slasher craze was happening they were making all the knockoffs of halloween they wanted a franchise they wanted yep. a franchise they wanted this one to be serious and so they made it serious I liked this movie overall I did and what really saved it because I was starting to get bored halfway through it I was being like this just feels like run of the mill you know any slasher and then the last third kind of saved the movie for me and the last third really feels like that's where Rita Mae Brown she was the one who wrote the script and she's a famous feminist that's where it felt like her script was still not as tampered with there was one gag that made me laugh out loud and I wasn't suspecting it where like the two girls go into the house after a bunch of shit has happened with the, the killer and one of them opens the fridge like four times and there's a dead body in there and it's slowly coming out more and more it's it's almost like a pratfall kind of thing she keeps closing the fridge without looking in it and seeing the dead body and like that whole bit made me laugh out loud i was like that's what this movie needs more of is this kind of dark humor yeah overall it was it was a lot of fun I wasn't surprised that the script was written by a woman, but it was kind of interesting to see that it was also directed by a woman. Well, not just that, but all three of the movies in that series were directed by women. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, when it works is when it feels like it wasn't tampered with and where it still feels a little bit humorous, both intentionally and unintentionally. The gimmick of the slasher, I'll admit, is kind of fun with the big (laughs) fucking power drill. It's at least a very weird and interesting thing to pick to like run around and kill people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. like the slasher isn't wearing a mask, though, which is kind of funny. <laughs> he almost looks a little bit greaser-ish. He's supposed to be like this insane guy who like murdered a bunch of people on a spree killing and was locked up like fucking Michael Myers and then escapes. And then when you actually see him, he's just like, this guy just looks like an asshole with like a giant power yeah. drill. <laughs> it was an interesting watch. It was a lot of fun by the end. Um, I do think especially people who are just like fans of slasher movies in general, it's one to add to the list. Yeah, it's definitely essential if you're into that genre genre for sure yeah Yeah. it's also a bit transgressive because like even there's like a lot of tna shots and again these are supposed to be like high school kids but like you know it's fucking 20 year old 30 year old (laughs) maybe actresses actually playing these people so but yeah if you're if you're going into a movie called the slumber party massacre and there's not weird sexuality involved in that and from an 80s slasher like that kind of seems to be the case i wish it had been more of a parody and i wish rita may brown's script had kind of bled through some more so i I think you should check out the second one because the second is definitely going to be up your alley. It is about an all-girl rock punk band 
and they are being stalked by like a ghost supernatural rocker guy who has a giant king diamond five-way bladed guitar thing with like a giant spear on the end of it yes are you kidding so yeah you should definitely check out too for sure i didn't know that the first one was supposed to be a, a spoof because yeah. in the early 80s the only spoof horror movie that i remember aaron do you know what the name of it was I'm assuming either Saturday the 14th or Student Bodies. Student Bodies. Yeah. Have you seen that one yet? No, I have not. Add that to the list. It is the airplane of early 80s horror movies. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Well, and and the funny thing is, I don't know if Brown fully intended what level of humor she wanted in this movie originally. I just know it was supposed to be a parody of the slasher genre in general. And like this being the height of the slasher, like in the early 80s, it would have been interesting to see like if it was more critiquing the mean spiritedness of slasher movies and violence, or if it would lean straight into parody being more of comic sensibility takedown of the slasher genre either way it's yeah. interesting you know it's interesting to see both elements in this movie and again like the slasher himself is not the most memorable obviously i already forgot his fucking name because he has a name in the movie but i do remember his gimmick so like at least there's also some pretty creative kills and fun gimmick kills in this movie which yeah. you know every slasher needs that too soundtrack is a lot of fun on that one for sure yeah i'd say the ending in the last third of the movie are pretty memorable but otherwise the rest of the movie is pretty like like by the books slasher it's also one of those two where if you go back and rewatch it after you've already seen it and you know kind of what the humor is all the beginning like you said does strike a lot funnier once you kind of realize yeah how heightened and dumb it's trying to be on purpose it wasn't very humorous to me for the first two-thirds of the movie but i bet if i did rewatch it now would be i'd get it more funny thing i guess kind of along the same lines there is a new Netflix series that's called The Girl Next Door to the Woman Across the Street from the Gal in the Window. It's something long and ridiculous like that. Yeah, it's the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. Yeah. Kristen Bell is in it and she is way over medicated and constantly drinking wine and it's just making fun of that entire subgenre of you know suburban woman sees murder maybe and gets way too wrapped up in amateur sleuth investigating it maybe the guy she's into and is trying to start a romance with is involved dot 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 is she really seeing what she's seeing is it the medication is it the drinking the trailer is hilarious and there's constantly just scenes of her like dropping casserole dishes but it's making fun of that entire subgenre but it's doing so in kind of a very flat and deft way where like lots of people didn't get it lots of people initially were like what the hell is this show it's really bad it's laughably bad it's like no no no. laughably is the right word it's literally making fun of this entire subgenre but it's kind of playing it straight so apparently yeah lots of people like had no clue that it was supposed to be parody and then as you get into the series and kind of get further along it becomes more and more ridiculous as it goes if you don't realize going into slumber party massacre that it's kind of that it is going to feel weird for the first little bit until it starts becoming more and more ridiculous but it kind of works that way in the best way where it lures you in and little by little it kind of ramps up 
to the ridiculousness. Yeah, because it caught me like right when it needed to. Because like I said, I was kind of bored in the mid part of the movie. But then like once the pizza delivery person shows up, I was like, yeah. okay, I understand <laughs> now what this movie is actually trying to do. Yeah, that one is on Shutter. I think it's kind of part of the permanent rotation on there. It's streaming lots of other places. Yeah, I watched it on Tubi for free. Yeah, and Shout Factory, Scream Factory has a really good blue of that out as well too. So that one's pretty easy to get access to. And there was also just the remake that came out. I have not watched it yet, but I believe it's about to hit streaming any day now. And apparently it was also pretty good. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. That's one of the ones on my short list. That's unusual for a remake. Yeah. Yeah, it actually, I, I looked up some stuff about it and it wasn't reviewed heavily, but it did get decent reviews from the people who did review it. So, Well, it was one of those that everybody knew it was being made and then all of a sudden it just gets dumped on Sci-Fi Channel. What? And like, <laughs> A, who the fuck has Sci-Fi Channel anymore, right? And B, they just did it with no buildup or announcements or trailers or anything. It just kind of all of a sudden appeared one night on a Saturday and like, boom, done, that was it. So unless you like really, really last minute heard about it and you have sci-fi channel still right it just kind of came and went so i think it's the kind of thing that once it's on streaming it's gonna really kind of pick up from the vibes that i've kind of gotten generally from people who have seen it i'm wondering if sci-fi is slowly making that turn back to horror because the chucky tv series which is like super critically acclaimed was a sci-fi series yeah they might be finally getting back around to that again and aaron and i brought this up on a past episode damien but like talk about a series that at least quality there was maybe a little bit of a dip but otherwise relatively still well received all the movies yeah and it hasn't been consistent and (laughs) it's the only series that keeps true to its own story yeah it's the only one that has been consistent yeah the one remake being the exception and that one remake has been disregarded since as like a totally different thing the entire thing from the very first movie to this chucky tv series is one story chronological yeah, yeah. chronological yeah. story it's kind of insane and it's kind of insane that i mean what i think the most negative i've seen of the series is the third movie even like the newer movies were all yeah. pretty well received three and seed i think are my least favorite and seed i really like the idea and the story well seed's just bad shit energy like crazy the execution <laughs> of that movie is i think what i have issue with i don't think it's a very well made movie but i i'm down with like the idea ideas that the script brings out but curse and cult were both really good and those are like the two newest movie movies that lead directly into the show so i have not watched the show yet really um that's another one that you know now that it's done i'm waiting check it out on some kind of streaming or whatever but i'm definitely going to check it out once it's available all right cool yeah i'll go ahead and wrap it up i've got three things to talk about firstly dug into the next movie in the severin folk horror box set all the be ours this time bouncing to Czechoslovakia baby so I watched a movie called Witch Hammer from 1970 Witch Hammer nice and it is about a front to back witch trial so it is about this village in Czechoslovakia this group of poor starving peasant women are accused of practicing witchcraft the town council rich people hire in this notorious witch 
trial judge guy and he comes in and basically turns the entire town upside down starts off this entire massive chain of events where like literally by the end everybody in the town all the rich people even even a lot of the guys that are on the council with him doing this whole trial end up being tried for witchcraft and burn at the stake right and it's just about how this one corrupt guy can come in and basically bend everything to his will the rules can just be made up and changed at any given time it's just all up to him and obviously he's grifting the entire town and he's you know milking everybody for their money and their food and alcohol and everything else and he's just a complete lech and in the middle of it you've got this one priest who is trying to be the voice of reason within this town he is interestingly compromised because he is kind of clearly still in love with this woman that he took into his house and she's his maid essentially it's just kind of these two guys back and forth battling it out philosophically and kind of where it goes and the entire movie is just a giant commentary on the soviet era Czechoslovakia and just a lot of the actual communist trials and literal witch hunts and things like that happening at the time. Obviously, you know, it's very similar to the idea of the Crucible, which was a whole giant commentary on McCarthyism in America in kind of the same exact way. This movie was directed by Adakar Vavra, and it was co-written by Esther Krumbakova. She was mostly known as a costume designer, set designer, but she started writing and was very influential in the whole Czech New Wave scene during that time. She was also one of the writers of Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, which is also a coming-of-age horror kind of movie from that period. But yeah, this entire movie is about the Malleus Maleficarum, which is the witch hunter trial judge handbook, right? It doesn't literally, like, translate to the Hammer of Witches as well. Exactly, yeah, which is where the title comes from. So it's literally just the manual how to, like, determine whether or not somebody is a witch or practicing witchcraft. And then it's all the various methods of torture to put the person through. And of course, it's all people being brutally tortured and confessing to things that they didn't actually do. And they're being starved and kept awake for days on in and tortured so of course you know did you practice witchcraft yes i practice witchcraft please let me go right you know who else practiced witchcraft with you oh uh this person this person this person right and it's just kind of how the entire thing gets out of hand and this one guy again corrupt lecherous knowingly is full of shit buys into his own hype and is just solely there for his gain really super interesting that one is also available on shutter as is pretty much everything else in that box set thankfully so you can get a hold of that one pretty easily if you want to check it out i thought it was fascinating very compelling drama and just a really interesting look at history at that time and kind of how backward everything was and also how things haven't really changed all whole lot in a lot of ways not a lot no so very interesting okay yeah so the next thing i'll mention i watched on hbo max antlers from this past year that was one that i wanted to see in theaters i had been hearing about it forever this is one that got delayed due to covid and some of the studio shuffling that happened with disney fox so this is a story by nick Antosca, who did all the channel zero tv shows i very much 
which I've liked a lot of his stuff. So I've been down to do this. And then, you know, Guillermo del Toro jumped on and was a producer. David Goyer was a producer as well. So I was pretty down with this idea. It is supposedly this story that kind of has some Wendigo influence. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm down. Uh, The ultimate movie I was kind of mixed on. Directed by Scott Cooper and uh, written by Henry Chassain. It was fine. I think the core ideas were interesting. It definitely is an interesting and different take on the Wendigo myth. There is no cannibalism element. So that was definitely kind of a different sidestep on how it works. But the ultimate creature design, monster design stuff was pretty cool. I like some of the characterization stuff with Carrie Russell and Jesse Plemons, who were the two main stars. They are brothers and sisters who were in this small Oregon town. Jesse Plemons has kind of taken over reluctantly as the sheriff of the town. And this is a that industry has come and gone there's lots of meth and drug production happening and lots of people who are out of work and struggling and so it's this entire thriving former mining and lumber community that has just kind of fallen on hard times right and it's this young boy that is in Carrie Russell's class he is taking care of dot 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 his father and his younger brother and something has happened to them let's just say I think if this movie was 45 minutes shorter, it would have been better. But it was one of those where, like, everything just happened at too much of a snail's pace. And there were too many moments where you're seeing every step of the process and something like if somebody is arriving at a new location, I don't need to see them drive up the entire long driveway, park their car put all their stuff aside, get out of the car, put all their keys up, walk all the way up the, you know, the porch. I know that drives you crazy. It's just too much. much. We don't need to see all of this, but it just feels like it's being super padded. It feels like a lot of coverage that they then didn't edit around properly, or they maybe started editing around all the coverage and realized, oh, we've only got a movie that's 58 minutes long. So it was one of those that when I got to like the 55 minute mark, I was like, man, this is the point in the story that we should have been at at minute 25. (laughs) You know, ultimately where it goes, I was satisfied enough, but I don't think it should have been a complete movie. This is something that felt like a really solid entry into an anthology TV show. It would have been a great one hour long episode. That was my main beef with the movie. But I mean, otherwise, it's very atmospheric. The score is interesting. The performances, again, from Jesse Plemons and Kerry Russell are fantastic because the two of them are amazing. So I really dug that stuff. Now, I think if this had actually been directed by Antosca, it could have been potentially more interesting. And interesting to me, too, that Del Toro and Goyer, like, put their names on this, ultimately. And I wonder how much influence they actually had. Well, yeah. An executive producer stamp that just helped to market the movie, you know? Do you know why they did that? I mean, I have no, I have no idea. No, I haven't really, like, looked into that side of it. I don't know if it's really been, like, well-discussed or documented, per se. But, you know, it was interesting enough, if you have time to burn, I guess, and you want to watch something that's new horror, I would more say check out Channel Zero, honestly. Check out the seasons of Channel Zero that are on Shudder that Nick Antosca wrote. That show is really solid if you want something that's a little more ooky-spooky and cohesive. The last thing I'll mention is 
also a streaming horror movie, and a lot of people are talking about it right now. I know which one you're about to bring up, and I've been, oh, I can't wait to I'm hear I'm not it. sure anybody's going to be talking about it in a month when this fucking episode drops. The other thing I happened to watch was the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and... Aaron t- tweeted me, or uh, texted me, like, right after watching this, and... <laughs> I, I, oh I, I haven't watched it yet, but Aaron, this is where you and I have have uh, battled in our conversations in the past about the original because I know you're a giant Toby Hooper fan. I know you do not like the original. fucking hated that. I cannot get into that movie. Yeah, so (laughs) this is one of those, again, we were just talking about Child's Play. We were talking about Friday the 13th. We were talking about Nine Brain Elm Street. This is one of those franchises that predates all of those, right? The original was 1974, but it's easily the most disconnected janky multiple multiple attempts to like reset the tracks and this is one of those where every single entry to varying degrees has interesting elements but is largely awful oh come on matthew mcconaughey (laughs) renee zellweger you know i love the second movie and that is really the only sequel that I think fully, fully works. I definitely have a weird, perverse love for the third movie. But the third movie also tries to, like, completely reset everything. And it's in a completely different part of Texas. It is a completely different group of people, seemingly. It has seemingly no connection with the first movie. It seems to be a completely, like isolated this is just a different flavor of it the best way that i can describe the franchise as a whole is this is the marvel multiverse of madness texas chainsaw universe like that's exactly what it is because every movie is like retconned it right in a completely <laughs> different universe right yeah because like they tried to retcon it with the remake and the beginning and then they tried to retcon it with texas chainsaw 3d or is that part of the remake okay so let's run through it real quick and i mentioned some of these on a previous episode you because did? i watched some of the ones that i had not watched we are on a tangent here we were talking about the the remake and that we're talking about the whole series so the first movie in second are obviously connected third is not third seems to be like a complete reboot of the entire thing because again different family different part of texas entirely no connection to the original beyond 10 years ago there was a murder right the fourth movie like you mentioned with mcconaughey again a completely different group of family people they are all vegans in that one there is also (laughs) a wild illuminati subplot so that one is also like its own weird bananas thing and then like derek said okay reboot time so we get the platinum dunes aughts reboot uh of the entire franchise where they remade the first one that one had its own sequel texas chainsaw the beginning uh which was a prequel sequel it was <laughs> largely uninteresting because it was like hey cool do you remember this thing from the last one that you just watched well here's how it got that way oh you remember the guy with no legs you're gonna find out how he lost those legs it was just a lot of that i think what's different is that movie at least is trying to say something about something. There is an issue in that movie that is being commented on. There is some larger social satire and commentary happening, even though the movie itself is largely unsuccessful. 
Okay, now we have Texas Chainsaw, just Texas Chainsaw 3D, which was a initial reboot of, hey, let's completely act like none of the sequels happened. This is the only one that is a direct sequel to the first movie. It is shot in Shreveport, doesn't look anything <laughs> like Texas. Shreveport. Yeah, and this is directly, again, picking up as if, okay, this is immediately after the first movie, two decades later. The timeline on that one's bananas. We're supposed to believe that Alexandra Daddario is the baby sister of Leatherface, but that would mean she should be like 40, and she's definitely not 40 in that movie. No. And then you have Leatherface, which is the second sequel called Leatherface, which is also a prequel that tries to rewrite the entire thing. Fucking hell. And then <laughs> this movie, the new one, again, just titled Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because, of course, they can't figure out any other interesting convention on naming these movies. This one also is trying to do the, okay, but this one is actually the only sequel that matters and is a direct sequel to the first movie. And, once again... <sighs> It completely tries to reset everything in a weird way that makes no sense, okay? You know, this is the recommendations segment of our show, right? This, this, is, <laughs> this is recommendations, but, like, let's chat while we're talking about this because everybody is seeming to talk about it, right? So my recommendation is watch something else. Yeah. Well, before before you really, like, eviscerate this movie, here's what I saw, uh, because I, I run our social media, so I, I'm on Twitter, and I am uh, I see a lot of the horror community on Twitter. There's a lot of back and forth on this one. There is a lot of back and forth on this one. Yeah. A lot of people are saying, like, if you have no expectations, it's a lot of dumb fun, it's good, you are allowed to like this movie. Then there's the other side, where it's just, this completely undermines the idea of what Texas Chainsaw could be, it's fucking filth, it's so stupid, it, it's not even fun it's just bad and then there's like this backlash to that of whether or not you have taste depending on if you loved or hated this movie so aaron with all that said go get into it okay this was directed by david blue garcia after the original directors ryan and andy tohill left the production a week into shooting <laughs> it's produced by fetty alvarez who did the evil dead remake he's also the one that kind of came up with the story nugget as well chris thomas devlin wrote the script it's shot on a back lot in Bulgaria. It looks nothing like Texas. It absolutely has nothing to do with Texas. It's clearly a back lot. The movie is definitely trying to have it both ways with the battle between wokeness and like trying to fight Texas stereotypical rednecky image. It's kind of weird how it juggles both of those things, but is ultimately trying to like be uninterested in those things at the same time. Like it can't have it. Is both it current ways. time? Yes. Okay. So it's 50 years later. Yeah. It's very much trying to be this weird commentary on like Austin. Marfa hipsters coming into a small town, buying up all the property and gentrifying the area and turning everything into like boutiques and coffee shops and art studios and this kind of thing. So it's literally about this group of young influencers going to this town in the middle of nowhere. And oh, by the way, Leatherface and his mother happen to live in an apartment in this downtown ghost town now where the mom came from who knows mom is played by alice krieg by the way where was she in the original movie right she was not in the picture <laughs> you're so full of vitriol for this movie already <laughs> there is no cannibalism at all in this movie cannibalism like does not factor in whatsoever and that's such a major thing in the first few movies right 
It has Shasta Cola, Chris Hemsworth as redneck man, big truck boy, I like guns, Texas man. And, of course, he kind of comes around and, like, oh, turns out he's not as bad as we thought. Uh, old badass Sally, who is now, like, a Texas Ranger, grizzled, I'm gonna get my revenge, is kind of wasted. And she's mostly 80-yard because it's, like, a French actress playing her, right? So she's not really actually speaking most of the dialogue. The kills are super lazy, and there's a lot of CGI gore. You know, there's really only one... Okay, that's... It's kind of iconic, cool, fine, whatever kind of killed. The rest of them are just like, well, uh, I was sitting in a car stuck and Leatherface just happened to like poke, poke, you know, now I'm dead. Oh, I got hit in the mouth and I have a CGI mouth hanging off my face. Now I'm dead. Like just a lot of uninteresting kills, except for the one big giant set piece that is literally on a bus. There is like a giant party bus that trucked in a bunch of these other like influencer millennial people who are going to buy up all these different different parts of town that they're auctioning off and it's just Leatherface on this bus murdering the entire chunk of people like this shark moving through the bus killing everybody in sight little by little that scene I think is largely just a gore fest it's a hey cool what weird creative kills can we come up with hey what happens if we have somebody try to get out of the bus and we saw him in half and the body like falls in inside and outside whatever <laughs> that scene is fine sure it's not worth building an entire movie around the one scene there are two references to the shining in this movie for whatever reason there is a weird school shooting subplot that involves one of the characters what the fuck (laughs) yeah and the solution is literally like but hey little girl you dealt with a giant traumatic experience that scarred you for life the solution is actually just guns (laughs) turns out just learn to use guns and that'll solve the problems anyway jesus christ that's not a message out of texas then i don't know yeah i mean they they got the texas there at least i guess yeah i'm curious about the shining reference though is it like oh those creepy kids out of the overlook hotel no there's literally two shots that are exactly mimic shots to the shining oh okay yeah you would know exactly which ones when you saw them it it just just like a weird reference right there was a moment that i literally had to back up and i was dying laughing out of anger frustration confusion (laughs) there's a moment where they are grilling somebody opens the lid to the grill and the creaking sound is literally the like flash bulb sound from the original movie Folied over the grill sound, right? That was one of the, like, just smack my forehead, I can't believe that just happened kind of moments. It's only February, but I don't care. I'm spoiling this movie, whatever. You've had a month to watch it by the time this comes out. (laughs) I mean, you've spoiled a lot of it already, so... The final girl... Very much how Sally is being driven away in the first movie, like screaming, laughing, losing her mind. In a Tesla that is on autopilot, hanging out of the moonroof, while she's like screaming, losing her mind, is maybe the dumbest thing I've seen all year, and it's February. (laughs) That's how the movie ends, is there's, of course, the last jump scare. One of the other characters gets yanked out of the car and murdered. As the car is on autopilot, driving out of the town, just automatically slams on the brakes. She flies out of the moonroof, smashes into a tree dead. No, you you would wish, right? (laughs) 
No, they're leaving it. They're leaving the hook for the sequel. Oh yeah. Oh no. There, there is a post-credit scene because again, we're in like a Marvel world at this point. So yes, there is a post-credit scene yeah. that totally sets up a sequel. So no family, no cannibalism. Largely unnecessary. Yeah. There's no cannibalism. The only family member is the mom who apparently has been dot 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 around question mark and then just they decided to like move into the middle of town the social commentary doesn't work this might be a controversial take but i love toby hooper so i'm saying this with all the love and admiration there are lots of directors like we said wes craven carpenter romero they are very very specific about including whatever message they're trying to get across in their movie. They're very conscious of it. They're very purposeful of it. They write these things into their scripts, right? Hooper is one of those guys that I don't really truly a thousand percent believe he is always purposeful with that stuff. I think a lot of it comes out organically. I think a lot of it is just he processes his thoughts, feelings, emotions, opinions on things, and it kind of comes out organically through the movie in a lot of interesting subtext. The original Texas Chainsaw, for instance, it has a lot of subtext and it has a lot of interesting commentary on obviously Vietnam and the recession and ye olde days going away and like modern age kind of encroaching on country culture and city versus rural and all this kind of stuff, right? Like there's a lot going on in that original movie. I don't know how much of it is absolutely intentional versus how much of it really organically just comes out because he's kind of bleeding it all in there naturally, right? This movie is trying so hard to bend over backwards and, like, say something about issues. And it's largely completely either, like, boneheaded about it or it's doing it on the most surface level that has nothing to do with anything and has no connection to the story. And frankly, Leatherface... I cannot imagine gives two shits about gentrification. Let's be real. <laughs> he wants to cut you up and eat you. Yeah. He does not care about the boutique that is opening up and putting somebody out of their home or business. He wouldn't even be aware of it, to be honest. Exactly. Right. That's the other thing, too. None of that makes any sense. The school shooting subplot, I think they could have gone with, but if they had actually treated that with any level of seriousness, but it just seems to be such an afterthought really only involving one character and like i said the solution just ends up being just get over it and love guns whatever yeah absolutely for completists only i would really recommend just watch one or two you know if this is kind of where the series is going i think i'm largely uninterested because it really drops everything that I like about that series and I like about the original and I like about the two or three sequels that I like, it completely gets rid of all of that in favor of just a really generic Leatherface with no real substance who is just killing millennial influencers. And that's not interesting. Is it even discussed that his mask is made from human skin? Oh no, let's just say he gets a new mask in this one and you exactly see him get his new mask. So, whatever. And frankly, I think it's funny too that he's Leatherface in air quotes, even though nobody ever actually refers to him as that. He is Leatherface, but he actually has a completely fresh mask that is not quite leather yet. <laughs> 
sure. tan a little longer. Yeah, he has fresh human skin face. That is what he is. I was going to say to like play devil's advocate, I was going to say, are we asking too much? Because I did see like a lot of people were like, it's no, dumb fun. I don't think we're asking too much. But even some like horror critics, some that we may actually, you know, respect and have tried to are trying to get on the show, possibly like say it's not that bad. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of dumb and fun. And that's like, what else can you ask for? But then you went into the description of this movie and I can find myself being disappointed and angry at it compared to the first one. Because something I've noticed on like Rotten Tomatoes over the last few years is this weird antagonistic thing with review bombing between the critic score and like the audience score. But the good news, Aaron, is the critics and audiences both have come together, at least on Rotten Tomatoes on this movie, of being dog shit because it has both a dog shit Rotten score and a dog shit audience score, which is not very often when that happens. So that means this this is probably kind of just a universally like misfire of a movie but then on the other hand i was reading that it was number one on netflix like in multiple regions including the u.s that's easy to do though it's be a new movie be the movie that comes out this week on netflix guess what you're gonna be the number one movie on netflix that doesn't mean yeah somebody was pushing it on twitter i don't even it might have been the director i don't know and he was just like number one movie on netflix it was like all right that doesn't make it a good movie that just means it's a lot of curious people that means that's what everybody's watching this week yeah i probably honestly be on your side if I actually watch this movie but honestly after listening to talk about it I don't think I would watch this movie unless we actually did a like commentary track making fun of it um I'm waiting to watch the second Texas Chainsaw movie because a we are gonna do it on our show that's coming and b like I want to again have a fresh eye for it when we do watch it and then I'm just happy with the first two existing interesting Damien we'll have to we'll have to get you back on to like actually have a debate maybe we could do a uh short episodes again Aaron where it's just you and him debating the first Texas Chainsaw movie I'll have to be able to watch the whole thing first Ooh, shots fired it's just, oh, i try it man i get about 15 minutes in i'm like this movie sucks but uh i i like <laughs> the first one a lot so I'll, I'll just stick with the first two and yeah like honestly the most positive thing i could say about the new one is it's only 72 minutes <laughs> <laughs> so you'll be in and out pretty quick and trust me by like minute 38 you're gonna be like oh my god when is this gonna end 72 minutes that's an hour and 12 minutes yeah that's a long episode of Grey's anatomy well two it has <laughs> literally nine minutes worth of credits it's like an 83 minute movie that has nine minutes of credits oh, which is wow. wild to me in all seriousness, I guess, the score is pretty good. The music is pretty diggable. Visually, there is some interesting stuff here and there. Like, I think there is some interesting visual flair from time to time. That's really all I can save. Yes, it's dumb fun. And okay, yeah, just turn your brain off and enjoy it. But like, I don't know. I kind of want a little more out of the franchise. And I think it's a franchise that has so much potential. And it's one that's just so frustrating because every sequel instead of trying to move forward and you know evolve the story they just keep trying to reset and reset and reset and anytime it does try to have social commentary of any kind it's always just the most boneheaded i don't know just misfired opportunity because people are trying to like recapture something of the original i guess so yeah that's the thing i would ask more of the series because i think the series is in dire need of of that shot in the arm. I mean, this could very well be the last in the series because
because they're just cranking them out for the sake of having them, you know? Yeah. But it doesn't feel like anybody with any actual vision or thought has made one of these movies in forever. So, yeah, it is kind of disappointing because it really does just feel like, oh, Netflix ended up with this IP, here you go. You can't make a message with a movie that tries to bring around the message of the original one that's 50 years ago unless you lived through what those movie makers lived through, what, what Toby Hooper lived through during that time. I mean, the political and the social things that were going on in 71, 72, nobody now, young filmmakers, live through that. So they, they can't capture that. Correct. And so that's what I was saying, because guess what? A lot has happened since then. There's a lot that you can grasp onto and comment on. And that has been true through the entirety of this series, because they've been making sequels since number two. So, like, there has been so much that has happened that you could grasp onto if you wanted to make the movie have some kind of subtext and commentary, yet we just pick the most surface-level stuff to try to roll with, and it's never really done in any kind of interesting way. And at the end of the day, too, I don't think the movie would be that interesting if you didn't have subtext. That's the other problem with a lot of the sequels, is they don't try to do anything other than just, this is man, he is big, he has chainsaw, he kill you. Yeah. That's just not ultimately that interesting at the end of the day, right? So the movie has to be about something. But I just don't think they've found the knack for it yet. And it's just disappointing that, again, this could potentially be the last one because it's not been received that warmly. So that, and from what I understand, again, the production was kind of a mess. So... I don't know. We'll see where it goes. If they make a direct sequel to this one, which I'm sure they will because it's Netflix and they can just keep cranking them out. I think I would be largely uninterested unless it really, really takes a left turn for the better. Well, they just cranked everybody's fees up on Netflix so they could churn out some more stuff. Yeah. So we'll see. All right. right. Well, so uh, yeah, we uh, we did this week, 1985 uh, comedy horror reanimator directed by uh, Stuart Gordon. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for coming, Damien. This was a good episode. I I loved (laughs) it. It's a pretty good movie. I think we think that's that covers that. So uh, thanks for coming. And <laughs> yeah, well, this is the magic of editing. Again, something that Antlers and Texas Chainsaw probably should have learned from. All right, cool. Well, yeah, let's uh, go ahead and get started talking about, <laughs> Talk about the movie. Reanimator. Uh, once again, this was Stuart Gordon's feature debut from 1985 splatter classic about a depraved medical student, Herbert West, who has created a glowing green chemical that brings dead bodies back to life and the lecherous dr hill who not only wants to claim this miracle elixir for himself but also eyes the beautiful fiance of west's de facto best friend dan kane based on a lovecraft novella from 1922 so here you go here is a taste of this piece of splatter insanity Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such drivel? These people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the six to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. I but lately they're getting out of hand. He's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You... 
you. 15 cc's of reagent being administered. Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Herbert, you're insane! Now what happened? I had to kill him! He's dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life, and not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head get a job in a sideshow? It will scare you to pieces. So, you know, you are the Freddy super fan, so we had you on for Nightmare on Elm Street, but this is quite the follow-up. Um, what about this movie speaks to you? Like, why did you want to come on specifically for this movie as your follow-up to that one? It came out in 85, so I'm a senior in high school. I don't remember what month it came out, so I'm either a senior in high school or I just graduated. Let's see, we're on Elm Street 2, 3, maybe? Would have been 2, yeah. 2. You know, we're, we're going full bore with the slashers. As I mentioned before... It was kind of my sister that got me into the horror movies. And I think she went and saw this one and she came back and she talked about the scene, which I'm sure we will all <laughs> talk about. And, you know, being a 17-year-old kid, I was like, holy fuck, I got to go see this. You know, we had already gone at seen Evil Dead, which was one of the first sort of horror comedy movies that I had gone to. I had also heard that it was just kind of goofy as hell yeah and bloody as anything that i had seen yet and at that point i was really getting into wanting to do special effects makeup i had heard that the effects were pretty great and it was a lot of blood and a lot of gore so it head to the theater to check it out and holy fuck man this movie was just balls to the wall craziness it came out the same year as romero's day of the dead oh wow i didn't know that yeah which was probably the only one at that time that equaled it as far as gore goes but this one just had that personality and humor yeah. that, for me, just kind of took it to a different level. It wasn't scary at all. It has some jump scares, but it was the level of gore. It was the gorgeous Barbara Crampton. That's the reason why I really, really wanted to go see this movie and really enjoyed it to this day. And on that note, because this is my first time watching it start to finish, uh, obviously there's the pop cultureness of this movie with, you know, a, a head that's detached from a body talking and stuff like that. My first kind of experience of a pop culture reference to this movie is Mars Attacks, which is just one giant pop culture reference to sci-fi horror and everything. 007 himself, uh, Pierce, Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan, and who was the other person in that movie? That, Sarah Jessica Parker. Sarah yeah. Jessica Parker, Sarah and they, Jessica they're Parker. the severed heads, and that felt like yeah. one giant homage to this movie and the other thing that you brought up is it being a comedy movie we've done a few comedy horror movies on this podcast this one is one of the more subtle ones arguably maybe the most subtle one and that's what makes the comedy of this movie actually like really hit for me i would argue that's a horror movie first and then a comedy second but the comedy is so yeah. brilliant and so like just under the surface just enough to where like you get it but then at the same time it's clever it's very clever jokes yeah. and yeah. i would say that while it's not scary 
in a traditional sense. So this is, I guess, for the horror newbies um, like me who are trying to get into horror. I think the things you have to kind of look out for in this movie would be more body horror. It does have to say a little bit about the concept of death and how can you defeat it. And if you, we actually did defeat death, what would it actually look like? The whole bit with the cat. Yeah. It's very demonic and unnatural looking, it turns out. You know, so there's there's some of that going on. Granted, there's not a crazy amount of like social commentary or anything, but I feel like this movie does, as bad shit as it is, have some things to say specifically about the concept of death and science and, and how far do we take medical science. And then I would also say that like, you know, maybe a little bit of a trigger warning because uh, let's just say Barbara Crampton, man, her character, she does not get the best deal in this fucking movie. No. There's a no. whole scene where she is basically molested by a like reanimated corpse and holy shit, yeah. did that get kind of real pretty quick because yep. uh, it's one of the most surreal but also like one of the like creepiest and probably triggering like moments of the movie for some. So, you know, just FYI yeah. going yeah. into that. So there is a little bit of like that real life horror injected into this. Uh, I use injecting on purpose and I would say there's a lot of fear of just medicine in this movie because it, it is all around a medical school and syringes and shit yeah. is like very much what's on on the screen and they never really talk about it but you know if you're bringing a corpse back to life every corpse that they bring back to life in this movie save for maybe dr hill is just kind of a body that comes back and does yeah you know a guttural yeah. animal kind of things so is it speaking to the fact that the spirit isn't yeah. there that the soul isn't there so the personality isn't there so you're just animating you know tissue yeah uh, essentially and so it uh, reacts with its animalistic reactions this is like a med student's version of necromancy, basically. It's this it's science's version of necromancy in this movie. And um yeah. and maybe necromancy, like it's all alchemy and all that shit. Like maybe that's just kind of what this movie is, is what he creates, that green liquid glowing goo that he uses is just alchemy. In modern science, that's what it would look like. Yeah. I think it is interesting, like as he's perfecting it throughout the film, and then like how Dr. Hill kind of at least has some semblance of his personality still intact, but like, yeah you're right they are reanimated they're not quite zombies because they're not like going around biting people and stuff but they are like animals they're like super strong animals yep. yeah. that just lack any sense of morality any sense of self and you're right there is an argument there even if you want to go the spiritual route of, even though the body is reanimated who they are is no longer there because that either right. has left the building or expired and so yeah. when you really think about that as, as batshit and funny and weird as this movie is it does leave you with those feelings and thinking back on it you know what what really is happening to those corpses when he's doing this yeah yeah totally and it's it's even said you know when they reanimate the first guy that they end up having a fight he said he reacted to me he heard what i said and dan kane said no he just heard you like an animal hears you that's kind of where I'm pulling this from, is that he didn't react to him. conscious in that, of it, yeah. He's not actively thinking and processing yeah, he wasn't it. conscious of, of what he was saying. He just heard somebody say something, and he turned towards him. Which, that actor, by the way, Peter Kent, that guy was Schwarzenegger's stunt and body double. That makes sense, because that was a 
big fucking guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were filming Terminator at that same studio, like right next door, same soundstage. So he was literally filming Terminator at the same time that they were filming this movie. Well, and that's <laughs> wild because this movie came out technically a year after Terminator, right? Because Terminator was 84. Yeah. And this is 85. Yeah, 84. Yeah. Yep. So let's kind of start at the beginning and let's actually talk about Stuart Gordon for a hot second. Um, we don't always like get into directors backgrounds and that kind of thing but I think for this movie it's kind of essential to kind of understanding like how the movie came about and why it kind of is the way it is he's kind of one of those not always talked about horror directors actually it turns out yes this movie from beyond dolls he's got some really solid stuff and so I have a weird weird history with dolls because I watched dolls again on the sci-fi channel randomly saw it at probably way too young of an age and between that and child's play i think it was child's play 2 specifically actually made me afraid of the killer toy trope for a long time when i was a kid <laughs> nice and i actually you know peek behind the curtain listeners i have added dolls to our list of future episodes to do because i want to revisit that movie because it's been so long and i have almost weird nightmare logic memories of that movie of stuff that i think that happens in that movie but i'm not 100 percent sure if it was what <laughs> happened in the movie or if it was an actual nightmare yeah so after watching this and learning that he like did this movie did from beyond and then did dolls i was like oh shit okay that's quite a like walk through horror with those first three movies of his so yeah Stuart gordon weirdly enough and this was total coincidence but we're going to be dropping this episode right around the second anniversary of his death because he did just recently pass but yeah i mean like we just mentioned from beyond dolls robot jocks the pit in the pendulum fortress castle freak the wonderful ice cream suit uh which you know he has like an odd filmography he's got a lot of stuff that bounces around genre wise Dagon King of the Ants Edmund Stuck which I also just recently mentioned on the show as a recommendation he did two Masters of Horror episodes Dreams in the Witch House and The Black Cat with Jeffrey Combs as Edgar Allan Poe he also has a lot of interesting what ifs he most famously co-created and came up with the story and was set to direct Honey I Shrunk the Kids interesting and that didn't end up happening he also co-wrote the abel ferrara body snatchers remake and the dentist and he was also one of the people in line to direct american psycho which we mentioned on one of our recent episodes so what's interesting is he actually went to school at university of wisconsin madison did not get into their film program and so he opted to study acting in theater and that is actually what he did for like 15, 17, 18 years before ever directing a movie. So he actually founded the first theater company at the school, the Screw Theater Theater Group. Oh, okay. He produced the game show where the audience, along with several audience plants, were locked into the black box and seemingly pulled out of the crowd and tortured and humiliated in front of everybody and just generally treated poorly and molested the place was locked down and lights were turned off and lots of weird antagonistic things were happening and literally every show that they did ended with the audience essentially rioting and demanding that the show be shut down and like they be let out what the fuck <laughs> and the entire point of the show because again this is 
was 1968 height of Vietnam. Yeah. The entire show was this comment on American apathy and how nobody bothers to do anything, to change anything, to stand up for anything until it directly affects them. So that was the entire point of this insane experimental show where definition of there is absolutely no way you would ever be able to get away with something like that today. He also went on to do a weird psychedelic political satire rendition of Peter Pan that was criticizing <laughs> the Vietnam War and the crackdown on protest efforts in Chicago. And he and his wife were arrested on obscenity charges for this play. So Damn. he has always been a provocateur. He has always been politically minded. He has always been about trying to have some kind of message and something in whatever he's doing. He formed the Organic Theater with his wife in Chicago, which that is kind of one of the like root foundations of Chicago theater. They performed 37 off-Broadway titles, a lot of David Mamet's early stuff like Sexual Perversity in Chicago and Bleacher Bums. He worked with lots of actual big-name people in these plays at the time to the 70s. Interesting Interestingly enough, he did a rendition of Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan, which Vonnegut approved and provided notes for, and he was trying to launch a remake of that play, and that was the last thing that he was working on before he died. And after his film career kind of fizzled out, he actually went back to to theater in the 2010s with Nevermore, which was a one-man show starring Jeffrey Combs as Edgar Allan Poe, which apparently was fucking amazing. And then he also did Reanimator the Musical with a lot of young horror indie movie kind of stars like Graham Skipper and Jesse Merlin. George Wint was also in it as the Dean. He also did a movie about Armin Muse, who was the Rottenberg cannibal. He did all kinds kinds of theater stuff so like theater has always been his main thing which is why i think it's so interesting how reanimator was ultimately executed the look and the feel the makeup gags the special effects gags the focus on the characters and the performance and the dialogue and the right, just everything about that part of it screams, oh, you have a theater play background. And apparently he has always been a fantastic director for actors to work with. Everybody has great things to say about him. So all of his background and knowing that he did theater for over a decade before he jumped into movies at all is kind of fascinating in a weird like, oh, we can see how all that bleeds over into the things that you're doing kind of way. So like I mentioned, the movie is based on a 1922 novella by H.P. Lovecraft, which, you know, we now know H.P. Lovecraft is definitely questionable, right, in some of his opinions. Um, and this novella has some interesting uh, flavor to it, let's say, here and there. It's a series of novellas, wasn't it? Yes, it was like a six-part miniseries that you can kind of read as one collection now. And we'll get into Herbert Westmore, the character, at least from this movie and the sequel. But the Herbert West reanimator, like you said, yeah, had multiple novella serialized stories all the way back from the 1920s. So it 
it's interesting the idea of just reanimating the dead it's kind of fun because i did look up some of the stuff from the original reanimator just stuff like uh the covers and everything and the cover art is kind of all this wild shit you know herbert west almost looks like the devil in like a business suit even in some of the covers <laughs> yeah but uh yeah it's it's interesting and even going into this movie i didn't realize that it was based off of hp lovecraft i just thought reanimator was like its own thing yeah and i mean it even says on the poster and in the it opening titles like hp lovecraft's yep. reanimator yeah. yeah so it's very front and center about what it's about yeah but ultimately this movie is frankenstein yes and that's kind of where this started so gordon literally was complaining to one of his friends about how all the horror movies now are so vampire based and everything's vampire. about dracula why aren't there more frankenstein movies and one of his friends was like yo you should check out reanimator and that's kind of how this started i find that to be kind of an odd thought because i'm trying to remember how many vampire movies there were in the early 80s well not early 80s as much as i think 70s because this okay. was kind of a long gestating process i mean you got to think there were all the hammer the christopher, christopher lee, lee vampire movies. movies yeah there was the dan curtis dracula i was just about to ask y'all like what vampire movies were around during this conception yeah. of this idea so you know his thought there was just you know hey where are more of these kind of movies it's interesting too to kind of hear him talk about it from the sense of the freudian interpretation of all of it is well werewolf movies are about the beast inside of every man and taming and controlling that vampire movies are very much about the taboo risky alluring thing about having sex with strangers and frankenstein is very much about masturbation in the sense that it is about creating life with out woman never heard of that take actually if i'm yeah. being honest yeah a lot of comments there that would be cut out <laughs> right it's very much about creating life without the need for like procreation or a female vessel right and it's interesting you bring that up because jeffrey combs performance as herbert west in this movie he is very like almost to the point of annoyance at the idea of a girlfriend or Kane yeah, being yeah. involved with Barbara Crampton's character. Yeah, he's completely focused on the reagent. Yes. And overcoming death. That is all that's in his life. Yeah, it's almost like asexual. Like he's basically fully asexually. Yeah. Just all my focus and passion is in this reanimation. Yeah, yeah, and Barbara Crampton's character, Megan, is also the only female character of note, and she is the only person person who's like i don't know that you should be doing this i don't know that any yeah. of this is correct this seems like a bad idea she's the only one that ever calls attention to like what are you doing she's absolutely right and all the worst shit because of, of what they're doing happens to her yeah. like of course yeah of course she is okay spoilers you know what happens to her dad dies gets reanimated then she gets abducted by the villain gets molested by the villain then she gets killed and then it's hinted at that she's reanimated at the end by her fiance dan kane yeah, right. she just gets shit on throughout this entire movie because of everything that happens what really all the men are doing between like what herbert and dan are doing and then what's happening with the villain of the movie all the consequences of their desires are all kind of falling onto her yeah which it, it's a very thin reason why dan goes along with herbert right because herbert knows that dan is dating and sleeping with meg which is the dean's daughter but the dean is obviously very aware that they're together i mean at one point he even says Dan says, this is my fiance. Yeah. So I'd be fairly certain that the father would know that they're engaged. And he even picks her up at her father's house for, to take her to study. 
I think it was more that Herbert was just using it as a way to like extort him into doing it from the standpoint of, yeah, sure, the Dean might be aware, but I'm going to make a stink about it so that he has to put on his Dean hat first and potential uh, father-in-law hat the second. favoritism kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I would also argue, though, that Dan is almost maybe like a Macbeth type character where like good intentions are there at the beginning but then like he kind of his own desire like what he sees Herbert West. I, I think oh, he's, yeah. I yeah, think yeah. he's more taken he's in Herbert West but with a conscience five years prior yeah right <laughs> but like he still has that he's drive Herbert West as Herbert West started out before he became maniacal and what's interesting too is there's multiple cuts of this movie which we'll talk about in a second but what's interesting is is there is a completely separate little subplot moment that the movie doesn't necessarily like really get off into necessarily, but there is a moment where you see Herbert West is actually taking the reagent as like a way to kind of juice himself up. It's in the extended cut. So you have to kind of think, oh, he's been literally high on his own supply. And so how much is that influencing his thought process and his drive and his obsession? and his willingness to go fully off the deep end you know like he's completely addled by the drug you know so like i said dan kane is very much how herbert west started and herbert west is very much where he's going so that's why there's that whole drive to like you as the audience member like you don't want dan to go down that path you don't want him to like fully commit to it. you want him to like get out and see reason before he's as corrupted as Herbert West, right? And let's talk about Herbert West, Jeffrey Combs, Herbert West specifically, because I feel like this is a horror icon type character. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. His performance as Herbert West is fucking insane good. I was kind of blown away at how good and how memorable of a character Herbert West is because of Jeffrey Combs in this movie. And also this movie does something I wasn't expecting it to. Like in one of my favorite tropes, is when you have a villain versus another villain and the other villain is maybe even more depraved because Herbert West, he's barely even an anti-hero. I would say he's still a villain because I thought going in this movie that like it would turn in a Dan versus Herbert. Herbert would abduct Barbara Crampton's character and it would be up to Dan to save her. I thought Herbert West was just going to be the villain in this movie. No, no, no. I wasn't expecting Dan to team up with Herbert to the point where like they are colleagues. Yeah. Herbert's a little antagonistic towards him, but there is a degree of respect between the two of them and their dynamic was really fascinating to watch unfold throughout this movie and then you have the villainous Dr. Hill who is a complete villain more so than Herbert West but still Herbert West probably did a lot of evil shit he lies throughout this movie to like manipulate Dan into helping him he probably killed their cat to be able to like experiment on it he obviously just views things as just test subjects even dead bodies in the morgue absolutely no respect for who they were as a person and their family like he just sees them as these are perfect test subjects to like perfect the reanimation and then you have the Dr. Hill who is the ultimate evil it, it was a lot of fun to watch reanimator Herbert West versus Dr. Hill and neither one of them are great guys but like obviously Hill is way way worse yeah. and that's just always a fun trope to me but yeah this movie kind of to me solidifies Herbert West as a horror icon up there with all the you know famous slashers we've talked about yeah and it yeah. instantly made Jeffrey Combs into like a horror icon actor because he has yeah. been in so much horror stuff since his credits are fucking nuts I mean he did a handful of things before this this was one of his 
his very, very early movies, but then he immediately went on to be in From Beyond, which was Stuart Gordon's next movie, where, interestingly enough, the character relationships and dynamics, the characters themselves, like who those characters are, completely flips and reverses in From Beyond between him and Barbara Crampton. They basically play the same characters, but they are reversed in that movie, which is super interesting. From Beyond is strange in that it almost plays like a sequel. It very much could be. It's still the same hospital, the Miskatonic Hospital. Yeah. That same nurse shows up. Yeah, which that is Carolyn Purdy Gordon. That is Stuart Gordon's wife. Oh, was it? (laughs) Yep. Yeah, so it it really does. It almost plays as a sequel. Yeah. What were you going to say earlier, Damien, about Herbert West? Oh, you know, so his whole thing is he wants to conquer death yeah but he has no respect for life yeah so it's an interesting thing there that he he really has no respect for life i mean we know he killed the cat he killed multiple characters in the movie yep just so that he could test his reagent on it yeah right so ultimately he just wants to say hey i did this thing yeah it's just pure ego it doesn't matter how i got here i did this thing look at me yeah. And to the point where like the very opening scene is so it, it's left up to the imagination of the audience, which I kind of really appreciated at the University of Zurich. They walk in on Dr. Hans Gruber, who's kind of a reference throughout this movie, basically convulsing. And it's him over him trying to like resurrect him. And you don't know if he murdered Dr. Gruber to like test out his reagent. You don't know if Dr. Gruber just maybe had like a heart attack in front of him. And instead of choosing to help him and try and get help, he let him die yeah. so he could try and reanimate him. But something shady but something shady and i i love that the movie never like really tells you what actually happened in that room yeah are we are we gonna just let the name go by right hans gruber yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly hans booby i'm your white knight hans booby (laughs) booby (laughs) three years before uh yeah i want to say went out the window yeah So, yeah, interestingly enough, Gordon got his hands on this story. He, like, literally had to go to the, like, Chicago library to read it because there were no copies available. And apparently they literally had originals of the magazines that it was published in and they were crumbling in his hands, you know? So he, like, photocopied the whole thing. Initially, he wanted to turn it into another play. And then his writing partners, Dennis Paoli and William Norris, convinced him, like, hey, let's actually do this as a 30-minute television series. And sell it to PBS, right? Like, let's do a 13-episode, 13-chapter series and make a TV show out of it. They initially kind of started with a 30-minute format, moved to a 60-minute format. Eventually, it evolved and they ditched the period setting because the original story is set at the turn of the century. It literally goes into World War One and a little bit beyond that. And they just figured, okay, too expensive, ditch it, update it, modern-day Chicago, Arkham, and air quotes, right? And they were going to utilize a lot of the cast and crew of the organic theater. And they even wanted to shoot it at the main, like, studio for the organic theater. And the trustees and, you know, people were like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Special effects tech Bob Greenberg, who had previously worked on John Carpenter's Dark Star. Apparently he and Gordon somehow met. And he convinced Gordon to, like, reconsider it for film specifically. Because that's where horror was really working at the time. And he got him connected with Brian Yuzna, who was a producer out of L.A., working independently. 
he convinced Gordon to come shoot it out in L.A. with Charles Band's Empire Pictures distributing the whole thing and kind of providing, you know, back-end support and everything else. So it kind of all came together once Yuzna got involved, right? And Yuzna went on to actually direct both of the sequels for it, and along with a bunch of other stuff. I mean, he's got a super interesting filmography as well, too, including some of the Silent Night, Deadly Night sequels, which I mentioned just <laughs> recently back in December. Wop, wop. <laughs> yeah. John Nolan provided a lot of the makeup effects. He and Gordon referenced a lot of morgue photos. The effects in this movie are real good. Bananas. Yeah. They're great. Yeah. Real yeah. fucking good. For a movie with a $900,000 budget. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's pretty nuts. I would love to know the story of the creation of this movie. Kind of, again, going back to Heather Wixon's book. Just how did they pull some of this shit off? Because I, I, I was floored when I saw the well, budget. That's the interesting thing is so much of it's just basic theater tricks. You know, a lot of it is yeah. really simple stuff you can pull off in a theater production that's just camera trickery and doubles and dummies and and stuff like that. And that's why it translated so perfectly into a staged musical later, because they just used all the same gags. I mean, most of the time when you see Dr. Hill's head, it's literally just him crouching under a table, under yeah. table <laughs> with his head sticking through, right? But like that whole scene is so memorable, like especially like when he yeah. has abducted her, because it's his head sitting there right next to her in like the pan of blood, and then the headless body doing all the shit to her, and he's just like, yes, yes, it's like yeah. it's happening. His performance really makes a lot of that come to life for sure like if you didn't have an actor who could pull that off the whole thing wouldn't work yeah we talk about Jeffrey Combs or Herbert West like David Gale is Dr. Carl Hill he's great he's yeah. great he's a real fucking bombastic scumbag in this movie yeah and they originally wanted Christopher Lee yeah. to play that part and you could totally see that I could totally see that in this role because it is very Christopher Lee-esque yeah yeah so yeah, John Nolan provided the makeup effects. He and Gordon actually referenced morgue photos. Like, they went and visited a morgue and talked with the morticians there. Talk about fears of death being all over this movie. Yeah, yeah, and learned all about corpse lividity and how blood settles in the body and creates weird colors on your skin and stuff because they figured everybody would just be pale bodies and that's not what the bodies actually look like, right? They used forensic pathology books to recreate a lot of the looks of the corpses in the film. Tony Dublin did a lot of the mechanical effects, including all the various gags for Headless Dr. Hill. So all of that stuff is really interesting. But like I said, it's all really practical stage stuff, right? And some of it is literally as simple as take a dumb cat dummy, <laughs> safety pin it to his back, and have him flail around. And so much of flail it is around. just yeah. their performances in that. It's the same dumb gag that they did a million times on SNL, where it's just somebody flailing around with a stuffed animal. Yeah, because you know? if you if you really take apart that scene with the cat, it is such a fake dummy, but like... It's a comedy gold It's scene. so yeah. hilarious. It, it, yeah. yeah, that's one of the funniest scenes. But they are so, like, double down on this being for real, that, like, it doesn't really take you fully out of the movie in a negative way. Like, it takes you out just enough to be comedic, but, like, at the same time, also, like, the ADR over the cat with the demonic cat growls and all that is really yeah, well yeah. done. So it adds that level of horror to it, too. When they kill it the second time and then he shows him, hey, this is what happens and he's like why is it doing like that why is it making those noises <laughs> don't expect it to tango it has a broken back god why you make that noise <laughs> birth is always painful it was dead twice 
which is like yeah. not a good <laughs> reason. <laughs> yeah, that's still all. unnatural as fuck. Like, yeah, no, it's painful because its back is broken yeah. and it had just been thrown against a wall. Yeah, so it's twice in this movie where at the end of a giant sort of fight scene, something gets smashed against the wall and it kind of hangs there for a second yeah. and slides down and leaves a spot yeah. of something up there. Yeah, and talk about the idea of defeating death, what it actually looks like. And Aaron and I bring this up: the idea of transcendence in a horror movie, and then like it turns out like it's a tumor monster and something so unnatural looking like how can that be transcendent in this regard coming back from death and defeating death looks like it sucks like looks completely unnatural and demonic (laughs) you know when it happened he's all happy he's like i've defeated death but it's like did you really like look at this fucking mindless animalistic piece of meat that's just attacking everything it can yeah is this thing gonna go home put on clothes and go back to its job no (laughs) no right no it's like yeah it really like even with a dr hill it just seems to bring out all of the id evilness in him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's so much more lecherous in just the head form, right? But it's interesting, too, like, the sense of control that he has, and this totally stems from, like, a weird subplot that they excised for one of the cuts of the movie, where Dr. Hill actually is doing hypnotism, right? And that's part of his character thing as well. Like, he hypnotizes the Dean and convinces him, Herbert West is a menace. He's, you know, no good. We need to get rid of him at the school as soon as possible. And Dan Kane, his best friend, we need to get rid of him too. There's a lot of that weird stuff, which again, kind of explains why the Dean immediately turns on a dime and is like, Dan, you're out of here. Yeah. He also tries to hypnotize Megan later because his whole thing is just the willpower. Where is willpower in the human brain? And when does death actually occur? Blah, blah, blah. And so you can kind of infer that his willpower is so strong and developed that he has literal mind control powers that he can still control his body separate and why he seems to have some level of weird control over all the zombies at the very end of the movie right so to come off of that you know going back to where the the premise of the movie where Stu was tired of the fact that there were so many dracula movies you really see dr hill utilize this ability of his when he goes to herbert's basement laboratory yeah and gives him a literal dracula kind of stare and says you will give me your secrets. Yeah. And Herbert literally shrinks down and sort of submits to him at that moment and he hands him the book. Yeah. But just long enough for him to back away and then pick up a shovel and take his head off yeah yeah where that character ultimately goes in the sequels is also interesting too and we'll talk about that in a second especially considering like you just joked about at the end of this movie he literally gets his entire head crushed like a watermelon and then thrown against the wall like a bunch of hamburger meat right so all of that stuff gets so off the rails and ridiculous at the end and the climax of this movie is just the best yeah ultimately like as far as the rest of the making goes richard band provided the score for this Richard Band, son of Charles Band, Empire Pictures, all that. Uh, Richard Band, let's just say the score is heavily based on Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho. Psycho. Thank you. 
which yeah. once he was called out on that, he later admitted to it and was like, yeah, I definitely use that as a reference. Sure. I was going to say I got all kinds of psycho vibes from the score. Yeah. I do love the opening credits of this movie, though. Just the weird animations of all the, like, anatomy textbooks and stuff floating around in the colors and, you know, with that score. It's a great opening credit scene. It alludes to, like, what, you know, again, the fears that this movie kind of does actually show and tackle of medicine and defeating death and all that. The subplot, I think they go around the idea of using him using hypnotism is instead his laser lobotomy surgery that he's perfected. And, like, it's hinted that the way he actually gets the zombies under his control is he does a combination of using Herbert West's cocktail of whatever that drug is to reanimate them, and then he does the surgery lobotomy thing. But I guess it's like he does it in a way where he can control them now, dot, dot, dot. Well, Dan even says it when he does it to the the Dean. He says, well, he did that so he can control him. Yeah. Yeah. Which, two notes on that that are kind of wild. One, we use lasers in medicine all the time now, specifically brain surgery. So, uh, he wasn't that wrong about lasers. No, not at all. B... Uh, we talked about serial killers earlier. What serial killer do we know that had a weird infatuation with, I'm gonna, like, drill a hole in somebody's head and pour acid and stuff into their brain to turn them into a sex zombie? Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer, right? So, like, you know, I wonder where he got some of that influence from. Did he see this movie? Question mark, dot, dot, dot. So, yeah, the movie went on to make $2 million, which, you know, not amazing, but on a 900k budget, pretty good and the other factor is this movie only got a limited release because it went out unrated and at the time a lot of theater chains would not put a movie out without an official rating so they submitted the movie to the mpaa instantly they were like x rating you're done right and so instead of recutting the movie yuzna was just like fuck it bro we're going out unrated and we'll just go to the theaters that'll take us. So that's a ballsy move. That was very, very rarely done. X ratings obviously were kind of the kiss of death at this point because really only porn had that kind of rating. You know, and it's part of the reason why, like, Midnight Cowboy was such a wild thing when it came out because it was an Academy Award winner that was a rated X movie. But rated X was mostly a domain of porn, and there wasn't really an NC-17 at this time necessarily. So, your movie getting an X was a kiss of death, and you had to pretty much always recut down to an R to be even considered for theatrical distribution. So the fact that Yuzna was like, nah, money where my mouth is, we're going out unrated, is kind of wild. So for this movie getting a limited release, $2 million is pretty impressive. Yeah, so what versions did you guys watch? Because I watched the one on Tubi, which... It- turned out was the unrated version that's the most common but how many cuts are there so there's there's three cuts the unrated version that is 86 minutes long that is the most common in my opinion that is the best version of the movie it's the tightest it's the most propulsive it's everything that you need and it's unrated it has all the gore and all the effects intact it's not like a lot of other movies where like what you're watching has got all the gore cut out you know david so the way he like because i didn't realize there were multiple cuts of the movie he texts me and he's like so which version did you watch and i was like i don't know i guess the unrated there's a whole scene where a headless zombie molests barbara crampton and you see basically everything so i'm guessing it's unrated turns out that's in every cut of the movie (laughs) really yeah that ended his marriage david gale yes his wife apparently stormed out left the theater i can't believe you yep wow I mean, it makes sense because that scene, like I said, is the most triggering and gets pretty real real quick. Yeah. So, yeah, there's the 86-minute unrated cut. 
The movie was then re-edited to an R. They did that after the fact, specifically for home video release. Because a lot of movie rental places, same deal. If the movie was not rated, if it did not have a rating, they would not rent it, right? And a lot of places just still didn't do anything with X ratings either because, again, that was mostly a domain of porn. Well, Blockbuster wouldn't, but a mom and pop shop with one of those little back corner rooms would have it. Exactly. A lot of those kind of places would. The place that I grew up going to all the time definitely had that kind of setup, right? But a lot of mainstream places wouldn't carry it, so they did re-edit it down to an R, but that meant that they also then padded it with a lot of this excised material, like, again, the entire subplot of Dr. Hill's mind control powers. There's the scene where, uh, again, Herbert West is, like, having to get his hit of the reagent to kind of keep working. There's more relationship stuff with Meg and Dan that goes on a little bit longer. So there's, like, scenes like that that kind of pad out that R-rated cut to 93 minutes. And then in 2013, there was the integral cut, which was essentially everything put back together in like a 105 minute edit of the movie and that is what is widely available now on disc this was first in a german blu-ray it is included in the arrow blu-ray set that's out now frankly and this is i'm i'm totally shilling right now but arrow's blu-ray release is fantastic so that's the first thing secondly arrow has sales constantly and I, I say this all the time on the show they constantly have these here's our entire catalog every title is three dollars on itunes for three bucks you can get reanimator it includes every cut of the movie on that digital version you have to like flip wow. over to special features in order to see the integral cut and the rated r cut because it just defaults to the unrated cut when you just hit play that's how itunes is kind of handling a lot of movies now where there's no longer like multiple versions they just branch off in the menu settings but yeah for three bucks like the next time arrow has a sale get it simple enough and it has every cut of the movie it has tons of good special features and everything else so if you want to really check out the differences in those versions that's the cheapest easiest way to do it well random question with the theatrical cut for damien actually because i know you hinted at this earlier when the very beginning we asked you like why do you want to do this movie did you catch us in theaters when it came out yeah there was a uh, small theater that was not Open typically only played Rocky Horror Picture Show Fridays and Saturday nights. Yeah. We caught it at that theater on a very late night. That makes sense that they would play this movie when it came out. Yeah. Now, as Aaron mentioned how, like, it, it really only doubled its budget, basically. But, like, was there any kind of reaction to it right when it first came out? At least with you or, like, your circle friends or horror fans in general? Or, like, what was the general census? Like, did this movie become a cult hit? Or was it kind of already a hit for at least the horror crowd? I only had a couple of friends that were we were all in horror movies. And I hate to fall back on it, but we were 17-year-old kids, right? So once we heard about the scene, we had to go see this movie. Yeah. And then, again, <laughs> because I was so much into special effects makeup at the time, the gore of it, because I was now also watching a lot of horror movies, not so much because they were good movies. <laughs> I was looking for something that would just had gore, yeah. you know? great kills and a lot of blood and this particular movie filled that desire uh and the fact that it was funny and you know had a couple of characters that you kind of cared about made it more worthwhile to, to see 
afterwards, it was, you know, that movie that you talked about, that funny horror movie with a shit ton. Because, I mean, they used 24 gallons of blood in this movie, yeah. I think I read. So <laughs> it was like a crazy amount of gore. I hadn't even gotten into the Of the Dead movies at this point yet. That didn't come until much later. I didn't even know Day of the Dead was out at the same time. Yeah. This movie was, for me, up until that point, the bloodiest movie I had ever seen. Yeah, that was the one thing I really couldn't quite narrow down when I was just looking things up is like, is this a cult classic or because I mean, yet obviously there is a bit of aging with the movie, but like it didn't necessarily seem like completely like, oh, it was panned when it first came out. Now it's accepted. But no, Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars out of four. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Wow. I was not expect wouldn't expect that from him. Yeah. A lot of people were very big on this movie, like right when it did come out. So, I mean, from the beginning, it's always been a pretty solid hit. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it definitely like very wild that you get that rare positive horror review from Roger Ebert of all people. So that certainly says a lot right there. But I think it was just one of those where it's wild and weird and ridiculous enough and funny enough and horrific enough and extreme enough that it kind of checked all the boxes for a lot of people. And it was just kind of instantly that underground hit. And it has obviously just maintained its cult status all the way to now. So yeah, it's very interesting that sense and it's obviously kind of you know one of the progenitors of that splatter genre that would go on to birth a lot of other stuff let's talk about the cast real fast so jeffrey combs obviously is herbert west this was one of his very first movies he would immediately go on to be in from beyond after this like i said from there horror staple literally just skimming his imdb right now Cellar Dweller, Dead Man Walking, Freddy's Nightmares, Robot Jocks, Bride of Reanimator, Pit in the Pendulum, The Giver, Trancers 2, Dr. Mordred, which was like a weird Empire Pictures riff on Doctor Strange, Necronomicon Book of the Dead, where he actually plays H.P. Lovecraft. He was in Star Trek Next Generation pretty consistently. He's in Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. His best batshit crazy role. Yeah, what role? was he in in the frighteners he was the agent that was going after michael j fox hey yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. i haven't seen the frighteners in forever so derek here's our favorite he's the cast member who has done voice work for batman cartoons and guess who he fucking played i know i i so i spoiled that because i was looking up his imdb as well as his wikipedia before and just see what else he's in your favorite character scarecrow scarecrow Yep. yep which again talk about a fucking mad scientist who uses weird green goop of some kind yep. to like cause some shit to happen yeah and what's wild is this is the new batman adventures from the late 90s he's the voice of scarecrow in that he is the voice of scarecrow again in, video in batman game. rise of Sinzu, which was yep. a video game he was in the batman as just random chlorogene employee he's in batman the brave and the bold as kite man and then he's in scooby-doo and batman brave and the bold as the question slash Professor Scarlet. Not only has he been in Batman stuff, but he has done multiple characters in Batman stuff. Scarecrow makes the most sense to me. Oh, absolutely. For sure. So yeah, he is still acting. He is still doing a ton of stuff. So he's definitely still around. Barbara Crampton obviously is horror queen royalty. She was also in a ton of stuff back in the day. You know, this was one of her early movies that she was in after coming off of Soaps, which her mother very much did not want her to do this movie she actually replaced the first actress 
whose mother also demanded she not be in the movie and she dropped out during rehearsals. But this movie definitely kind of set her on that path from there. Because, I mean, she was in Chopping Mall, From Beyond, Puppet Master, Transfers 2, Castle Freak. She was in a lot of Stuart Gordon's other stuff. And then, obviously, she's had this insane resurgence in the last couple of years. She was in Ty West's You're Next in 2011. And then from there, she's in Rob Zombie's Lords of Salem and We Are Still Here, which we have covered on our show, Beyond the Gates, which I love, Death House, Death Night, the new Puppet Master movie. She was in a season of Channel Zero, which I mentioned earlier. She was in Jacob's Wife, which I mentioned on a recent episode. So she's doing a lot of producing work now. So she's very still involved in the horror genre. David Gale, who played Dr. Hill, unfortunately, he died just a few years after making this movie and kind of right as his career was really taken off. He had been in a lot of TV stuff leading up to this movie. When did he pass away? So he died in 91. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, he died in 91. And, you know, after this movie, he kind of immediately started taking off and he had more TV stuff and was in Bride of Reanimator and The First Power, The Giver, and then he passed away in 91. But he's another one of those people like he certainly would have gone on to been in a lot more horror stuff. Bruce Abbott, who plays Dan Kane, he's maybe the weakest link in the cast, in my opinion. But that character is also just kind of supposed to be, he's the audience surrogate. He's kind of the, like, everyman, blah, blah, blah. I thought for, like, the protagonist role, he wasn't too bad. No, he's not too bad. But when you have him... And then you literally have the stunning Barbara Crampton, David Gale, and you have Jeffrey Combs, and you have him surrounded by all these other people. All acting circles around him, yeah. Yeah, he definitely, like, seems flat. But he was uncredited as one of the people in Last Starfighter. He was in Bad Dreams, which that's kind of the other main movie I know him from. And then, of course, he's also in the sequel Bride of Reanimator, and then just a lot of TV from there for the most part. The Dean, Robert Sampson, that guy is one of those that guy actors that has been in over 150 movies. And he was literally still acting all the way up until 2020 where he died in January of that year. Um, He was last in Hunters, which was a very interesting Amazon show. But yeah, he's also one of those guys that you've seen him in a gajillion things over the years as well. So yeah, this cast is a lot of fun. This is one of those casts where everybody in this core small group has a very important role to play. Nobody's wasted. Everybody has given it their all. Where they all go is very interesting, ultimately. Every single character has an arc, which is rare for these kinds of movies. Yeah. The cast is really really solid so let's talk the sequels real quick there are two direct sequels to this movie damien actually Uh, watched them i watched the second one yeah i haven't watched the third one yet ah okay so yeah there are two sequels to this movie there is bride of reanimator from 1990 and then there is beyond reanimator from 2003 like i mentioned earlier brian yuzna the producer of the first movie directed these two sequels both of which have jeffrey combs coming 
back as Herbert West. Yeah. Bruce Abbott comes back for the second movie. David Gale also returns as well. James Earl Jones's father, Claude Earl Jones, who also played the cook in Sleepaway Camp, he is in this movie, as well as Kathleen Kinmont as Gloria, who is Dan Abbott's new love interest. She is the titular bride. The special effects in this one take it to arguably a whole next level because it's all screaming mad George. And so it is full of the most insane, surreal, grotesque, weird mutations and creatures. And it just goes way past a dead body that comes back to life. Dr. Hill literally returns as a head with bat wings flying around, right? Fucking amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, is, as we mentioned, his head is squished and thrown against a wall yeah. at the end of the first movie, <laughs> but yet he's fully intact and found at a sideshow. Yeah. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head get a job in a sideshow? What's interesting is, I mean, I read years and years and years ago the novella, and I actually just re-listened. You can find a podcast, LibraVox, which is free public domain stuff, but there's like a six-part audiobook that you can essentially listen to that's literally an hour and a half total. Like, you can blast through the entire thing real quick. What's interesting is listening to the whole thing again the other day, I realized, oh shit, so the first movie is literally just kind of the first half or third of the story, where it's Dan Kane who is narrating. You don't, I don't think you actually get his name necessarily, but he is narrating everything in the past tense about his friend Herbert West that he went to Arkham Med School with and how they started their early experiments and they began grave robbing. Eventually, dot, 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 they like created some abomination kind of thing and they had to kind of run off and escape all these, you know, investigations that were happening in the area. And then the story picks back up years later in World War One, where they are still continuing their experiments, but now they have an endless supply of fresh corpses to experiment on. That's kind of how this sequel starts. It's Herbert West and Dan Kane like hiding in the jungles of South America, continuing their experiments during like all of our American CIA Banana Republic meddlings in South America. Like they're literally down there experimenting on the, these dead bodies. Oh, really? That's the setup? During wartime and they escape back to America and they kind of sneak back into the country undercover and get back to their experiments again. Didn't realize, like, that's where it began. That's kind of wild. Yeah. But they end up right back at Miskatonic. Yeah, weirdly enough. And that's kind of where the novella goes as well. So in World War One, they're doing their experiments. That's where Herbert West murders his superior officer who was this renowned scientist guy, dot, dot, dot. And maybe that doctor's head is in a jar full of goop that can still talk and travels with them, right? And they were, like, in a hospital that got shelled by the Germans and supposedly exploded and they died, dot, dot, dot. Nobody knows what happened. And then, of course, Herbert West shows back up years later mysteriously after being absent all this time. And it kind of ends like this sequel ends where it's just straight up all these abominations that come out of this ancient crypt that he's been experimenting on and they eventually just tear him to pieces 
pieces and he's dead, right? But yeah, interestingly enough, the novella ends very much how the second movie ends. So if you really put the first and second movie together, you kind of have a really blown out version of the novella as a whole. So yeah, the second movie is a lot of fun. Arrow also has a really great Blu-ray of that movie with a lot of good special features as well. That's another one that, again, when Arrow has her sale, it's $3. Pick it up. So then that moves to the third movie, Beyond Reanimator. This one is fully about Herbert West has been arrested. He has been in prison for like a decade, and he is experimenting on all of the inmates. So that's an interesting setup, I will say. At yeah, least. it's always interesting in any kind of media, like sequels, where dot, 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 the main character you're following ends up in prison at some point. But there's like a new doctor that comes in and starts kind of getting in the mix of all of his experiments and it just kind of goes off the deep end. This one was actually made overseas in Spain. Brian Yuzna kind of created this whole giant studio overseas called the Fantastic Factory. And a lot of his movies were then filmed over there just because it was so much cheaper. Uh, Return of the Living Dead 3, Dagon, and I want to say... Maybe his Silent Night, Deadly Night sequel number four was also filmed over there, but he was filming a lot of stuff in Spain just because it was cheaper. It was the same way that the bands, uh, again, Empire Pictures shot a lot of stuff in Italy, right? A lot of Stuart Gordon stuff. What's wild is Reanimator 1 is literally the only movie that Stuart Gordon ever ever filmed in America. Every other movie that he directed, his entire rest of his career was filmed overseas because that's where Empire Pictures was doing the majority of their productions. So Beyond Reanimator is kind of weird because most of the cast is Spanish. Elsa Pataki is kind of the only other person in it that you've probably seen in some other stuff before. That one, I'm not a, the biggest fan of. It's very cheap. It has a lot of early digital effects that aren't great. And it does just kind of honestly recycle a lot of the same stuff from the first two, but in a less interesting way. So the third one is fine. There is a Blu-ray of that out as well from Vestron. You can literally get all three of the movies in this trilogy on Blu-ray right now. And they're all available on streaming. I'm pretty sure you could watch all three of them on Tubi right now for free as well too. So the nice thing is, this is one of the rare franchises where everything's accessible. You can literally find all three of these movies very easily. And I guess the last thing I'd mention as far as sequels go, there was thought of doing a fourth one that was specifically going to be a satire commentary on the Bush presidency. And it was literally going to be Herbert West as like the White House science advisor, dot, 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 you know, dumb Texas hick president dies. It was going to be the joke about Bush choking on the pretzel. And then Herbert West brings him back and then he's kind of puppeting the president of the United States. <laughs> that would have been kind of ridiculous. It's kind of this, you know, he goes full megalomaniac and obviously like that one never happened. That seems like a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah it, it would have been a very interesting thing if it had actually come out at the time. But I think if it was one of those where it came out a few years after, it wouldn't have hit as hard. That would yeah. be the only downside is if it were like really in the moment, it would have been pretty fun 
fun and interesting. But yeah, we were talking about franchises earlier that actually follow a linear chronology, and this series does. And it, for all it's worth, I mean, it's the same producer, it has the same tone kind of throughout, and it has the same star. So there you go. There's three movies yeah. that all actually have some consistency. The only other thing I would say is that there's comics, tie-ins, quote-unquote sequels. Now that I didn't know. Yeah, there, there are a few for Reanimator. I didn't look them up. I just know I've seen them. I know there was like a hack slash meets Reanimator's comic specifically. What? Uh, at one point. <laughs> yeah, I have okay. some hack slash that I recently came a- across. And I think the Reanimator miniseries is among that that I got. So uh, I, I might you know recommend some hack slash soon and maybe I'll read the Reanimator story specifically. Because I think there's also a hack slash Chucky crossover miniseries too like i think hackslash has crossed over with a couple of the horror icons that's wild yeah damien do you have any final thoughts on this this was your choice it's just one of the funnest goriest movies of the 80s i will say as many times as i've seen it in the past on vhs watching it in high definition this past week for the first time very early in the movie barbara crampton appears in about the two or three minute mark and she's immediately you know in the sex scene with with dan I noticed that there is a poster on the back of Dan's bed. Yes. Yep. Talking heads. Yeah, yep. it's a poster for uh, Stop Making Sense, the Demi movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I literally put in my yeah. notes, rad poster, and then I thought, wait, yeah. that doesn't make any sense if you're not watching that longer cut of the movie, probably. I'll take this note out. But yeah, that, that, of all the things you're going to have up on the wall, all the things that Stuart Gordon or the set dresser like specifically was like, yo, put this out here, good choice. Yeah. yeah. And then just the only other thing I would touch on is I really kind of liked that the setup was a med school, and it was the med school at Miskatonic, so you know they seen some shit yeah Yeah. and that like the main characters were all med students like i thought that was interesting i do kind of like uh horror movies like i think of raw when we covered raw way back you know they were vet students but still kind of similar like medical students um i like when horror movies are in that setting so that was kind of nice because i just kind of assumed going into this movie that they were already full-fledged doctors yeah but it it added for some interesting dynamics specifically the conflict between west and dr hill because dr hill is like this whole tenured professor doctor who probably stole some like and plagiarized some other people's work and then you have Herbert West who's still technically a med student but obviously more brilliant than he is and that whole adds a whole nother dynamic to their relationship but uh yeah that was going to be my final thought on the whole thing this movie doesn't lag at all I mean it's uh yeah right at the start man yeah there is no lull at all it's 10 minutes in and they're expelled from school and and a quick quick and crazy ride I really appreciate it because they were kind of setting up to like, oh, we're going to slowly learn Herbert West's experimentations. Like, no, we find out he no. fucking reanimated the cat like 20 minutes in. And yeah. then the, the, the Dan's on board with him. So I was like, okay, yeah, cool. I don't know where this movie is going now. And I'm excited to see. And I was wrong about some of the places it went to. I still think my favorite line of the movie is, what was I going to tell you, Dan? Cat dead. Details later. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you leave a note? To your point, too, about the movie really moving at a click, I'll reiterate, just watch the unrated cut. It's 86 minutes. It's actually the shortest version of the movie, but it is the most bam, 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 get you going. The integral cut is interesting if you want to see everything but the integral cut does lag in certain spots for sure like where it's just kind of moving a little bit too slow so the unrated cut for my money is absolutely the one to watch first if you've never seen it before and i will say too and this will be my final thought my wife loves this movie and i never would have thought that she asked to watch this movie one night 
I did not pick it. I never would have thought this was a movie that she would have liked. She's still kind of just so-so on like the Evil Dead movies, which that's, you know, about as similar close in tone and content and everything else. She loves this movie. She thinks it's hilarious. She's very charmed by it. And uh, this is definitely like one of her favorites that I never in a million years would have guessed it. So if my wife loves it, you should definitely give it a spin and see what you think. So yup, yup. Uh, I guess that's it. So Derek, why don't you go ahead and take us out, bro? Yeah, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward, and my co-host Aaron, the movie Monster Boy. You can find us at pretty much all the podcasts now apple uh, stitcher google pod chaser good pods etc etc please continue to rate and review us on there and follow us specifically on apple pod chaser and good pods that's where we've been kind of getting most reviews and listens and charting on which is really crazy and awesome so thank you for all the support you can check us out our socials at watch if you dare on facebook and twitter um on top of our twitter page and our Podbean page uh, you can find our spotify music playlist which has a lot of music based off horror based off movies etc etc Speaking of music, shout outs to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for the bumps at the beginning and ends of each episode. You can find his stuff at Party Gator on Bandcamp, Opossums on Bandcamp, Big Clown, whatever million other music projects your brother has yeah. going on. And I think that's it. Damien, is there anything you wanted to uh, shout out or plug or anything like that? Nothing horror related. <clears throat> I have a uh, music group on Facebook with a buddy of mine named Dave Perry. We started it just as COVID was starting. We're up to about 300 members now. It's called uh, Have You Heard This One? We just uh, post and talk about music. No politics, no COVID, just just music. So if everybody wants to check that out, it's uh, Have You Heard This One on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely check that out. I'm going to check awesome. that out too. Hell yeah. So Aaron, do you have anything else to say before we close out? No, I guess that's it. We can go ahead and stop it here. Good to go. Oh, God. Why does Sally make that sound? Because podcasting is often painful. <laughs>